Section 4 of The Romance of Polar Exploration This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Robert Ray The Romance of Polar Exploration by G. Firth Scott Chapter 4 The Voyage of the Polaris The Government of the United States in June 1871, dispatched the Polaris to explore and survey the passage between Grinnelland and Greenland, and also, if possible, to push on to the Pole. The Polaris, under the command of Captain Hall, sailed from New York on June 29, 1871, with a crew of 33 and provisioned for some years. She succeeded in passing through Smith Sound and Robeson Channel, and on August 31, she had reached as high a latitude as 82 degrees 11 minutes north. Returning to the southward, she went into winter quarters, but on November 8, her captain was struck down with apoplexy. Upon his death, all idea of going further to the north was abandoned, and as soon as the spring of 1872 commenced, preparations were made to return to New York. The ice was particularly heavy, however, and very slow progress was made when, by August, the Polaris became entangled with some big floes which checked her in every direction. On August 14, when off the entrance of Kennedy Channel in latitude 80 degrees, the ice closed round her and fixed her so firmly that every effort made by the crew to release her was without avail. A series of floes had closed one upon the other and had so compressed themselves together that all hope of extricating the Polaris, until the ice itself broke up, was reluctantly abandoned. The pack in which she was involved continued to slowly drift to the south, until, two months after her capture, the ship had drifted in the ice to 78 degrees 28 minutes north. At this point, a violent gale occurred, which resulted in the series of adventures for her crew that has made the voyage of the Polaris so notable. As the gale increased in intensity, the huge field of heavy ice in which the vessel was imprisoned began to heave and grind in an alarming manner. The masses joined together by the force of earlier collisions broke asunder under the strain of the wind, but only to close in again with terrific force and crashing. Every time that separated portions of the pack came together with a crash, the ice around the vessel creaked and moved, and the Polaris herself strained in every timber under the trial. A sudden parting asunder of the pack, where she was encased, liberated her for the moment. Freed from the grip of the ice, the force of the wind was more evident, and she heeled over to the gale as it caught her in the temporarily open water. Before she could right herself, the ice closed in again upon her sides. The rending and crashing which followed the nip convinced all on board that the vessel was too crushed ever to float again. And while the flow held together and she was kept from foundering, the crew set about putting stores, tents, clothing, arms and anything else they could lay hands on over the side onto the ice. They feared that with the next split the vessel would be in the water again and there was no doubt in anyone's mind but that she would then sink like a stone. 
No one knew how long it might be before that split came, and in the meantime everyone worked at the only means of saving their lives. Nineteen of the ship's company scrambled out onto the pack, and as their comrades passed out the various stores and articles they were able to seize, those on the ice stacked them, as well as they could, on a massive hummock. Through the wind and the cold they worked, neither pausing for rest nor refreshment. All around them the ice was heaving and grinding, and over them the cold northerly gale was blowing and driving great clouds of snow. But they worked on, knowing only too well that in every barrel of food they rolled into security was contained a week of life for them. The driving snow made it more and more difficult to see, until the air was almost dark. With fearful force the wind howled across the icy expanse, and those on the pack crouched for some shelter behind the stores they had piled up by the hummock, waiting till the gale should have exhausted its fury. The faint sound of a cry came to them from the direction of the ship, and they peered out through the gloom. Then a cry of despair broke from their lips. They forgot the force of the wind and the cold of the driving snow as they sprang from behind their shelter. The ice had parted again, and down the long lane of open water which had been formed, the hull of the ship loomed as it swung away into the darkness. Anxiously the castaways watched for the coming together again of the divided packs, in the hope that the Polaris would again be caught and held. Those who remained on board were equally anxious, for they knew the vessel must be leaking terribly, and to be left much longer in the open water meant that she would founder and they be drowned. A man ran to the rudder and tried to bring her round to the ice which glimmered through the snowstorm. But the rudder was damaged too much for steering, and the ship drifted on. Soon it was obscured from those on the pack, and the truth of their position dawned on them. Whether the ship had foundered or not, they did not know. But this was clear. They were adrift on an ice pack which might at any moment split asunder, and precipitate them into the freezing water, or if it held together, carry them till they died of cold and starvation. Either alternative was sufficiently gloomy to depress the spirits of the bravest. As the nineteen cowered behind their stack of provisions for shelter from the keen snow-filled wind, into the mind of each there came a grim determination to fight, while there was an ounce of food in the casks or a vestige of ice to float them. In the morning, when the storm had abated and the air was clear, they emerged from their shelter and looked about for a sign of the vessel. Some of them clambered up onto the top of the highest hummocks so as to command a wider field of vision. But they saw no more than those who remained below. All around them was ice, piled in heaps or stretching out in flat expanses. But always ice, as far as the eye could reach, and nowhere a vestige or a sign of the Polaris. They gathered together round the heap of stores and looked at one another in silence, each one reading the other's thoughts, and always finding them the same as his own. The ship had probably gone to the bottom, with all on board, as soon as she broke away from the ice. The packs had closed again over the spot where she had disappeared, so that there was no chance of any spars or timber floating to the surface and confirming their suspicions. 
everything was under the ice everything except the scanty supply of provisions that had been put overboard at length one man spoke it was no use mincing matters he told his comrades they would do well to realize the position they were in and looking at it from the worst side make the best of it and fight to the end the vessel had gone and all they had to keep them from starvation and death was the heap of stores and their own energy there was no timber to build a raft so that they could float if the ice broke up there was no wood to waste on a fire but as they had to keep afloat and warm if they were going to escape he considered that first of all they should remove their stores to the thickest heaviest ice they could find and then set to work to build snow huts for shelter winter was coming on with its long spell of darkness and there was no time to waste it was everyone's business to help one another and to do the best they could working together and sharing whatever came whether it was short rations or plenty the sentiments appealed to all the men and they formed themselves into parties to carry out the scheme fortunately they had just passed one winter in the arctic regions and knew therefore what was in front of them and also how to carry out the building of snow huts and the other necessary makeshifts a massive hummock which apparently was too strong to be crushed and solid enough to last through several summers without melting was selected as the site of the encampment the snow which had fallen during the gale was not quite hard enough for building huts at the moment so while some of the party were overhauling the stores and arranging to move them to the hummock the others were clearing away the snow from the side of the camp and banking it up all round as a breakwind by the time the stores were placed in the enclosure canvas shelters were erected for a temporary covering pending the time when the snow became hard enough to cut for building blocks it is only when the snow has become compressed by its own weight and frozen nearly solid by the cold that it can be cut into slabs or blocks for a hut when it has become hard enough the blocks are cut and the building commences first a circle is laid with a small space vacant where the doorway is to be on either side of this opening the blocks are laid so as to form the plan of a porch one side of which in the present instance was continued at right angles so as turn the entrance passage towards the stack of provisions and thus shelter the doorway from the wind as soon as the ground plan of the hut was laid the surface of the blocks was moistened and other blocks laid upon them and so on until the walls rose some 5 feet the moisture making the blocks freeze hard to one another the layers were now gradually lapped over the interior until a dome roof was formed both inside and outside were then moistened and smoothed and the cold air freezing the moisture glazed the entire structure with a covering of ice all the clothing bedding and weapons were taken inside a lamp was constructed out of an empty preserved meat tin it was filled with fat and with a piece of twisted tow for a wick it lit up the interior of the hut and afforded some warmth as well heavy canvas curtains were suspended across the opening out of the hut at the inner wall at the bend in the passage and at the outer opening such of the packages of stores as were suitable 
were also brought into the hut, and upon them the blankets and furs were laid so as to make the sleeping places as comfortable as possible. The quarters were thus as good as the men could make them, but one anxiety still remained. The lamp would have to be kept going all the twenty-four hours, and especially during the long Arctic night, but the supply of fat was limited. A hunting party was organized to search the pack for seals or walrus or any animal from which blubber could be obtained. Here again, the experience of the previous winter and its hunting exploits served them. A small opening in the pack was discovered a mile or so from the camp, and on the ice around the water, three seals were resting, having evidently been caught in the ice when it closed. With great care, the hunters crept over the ice towards the animals, whose sacrifice meant so much to the castaways. Only two had rifles, the others carrying harpoons they had made from the tent poles, and which were anything but reliable weapons. Steady aim was taken by the two men who had the rifles at the two larger of the seals. Firing together, one seal fell dead. The one which was not aimed at plunged into the water, and the other, badly wounded, hobbled to the edge of the ice. In another moment, he would have been over and probably have sunk to the bottom had not one of the men flung away his harpoon and, springing forward, managed to seize the hind flippers of the wounded creature. His comrades rushed to his assistance and dragged both him and the seal back from the opening onto the ice, where the latter was quickly dispatched. They were harnessing themselves to their victims in order to drag them over to the camp when a loud snort from the opening caused them to start round, just in time to see the third seal disappearing under the water. At once they understood the situation. The opening was the only one for miles and the seal was compelled to come to the surface there to breathe, as he could not reach the top anywhere else for the ice. It was at once decided to wait for him, but as if he were shot while in the water, he would inevitably sink to the bottom and be lost to them, they determined to lay a trap for him. The seals already killed were placed in natural attitudes near the water, and the men hastily retired to sheltering hummocks to wait the return. The men with the rifles were both to fire upon the seal as soon as he emerged onto the ice, for he was too valuable to be lost. They had not waited very long before he reappeared, and raising his head high out of the water looked round. Seeing nothing but the two seals on the ice, he swam leisurely round and round the opening before scrambling up onto the ice. As he reached it and moved towards his two companions, the men who had been carefully aiming at him fired and killed him. With the three seals, the party returned to the camp in high spirits, their arrival being the signal for general rejoicing, for not only would the blubber of the seals keep the lamp supplied with oil, but their skins were very welcome additions to the stock of warm coverings, and the meat was an invaluable addition to the larder. Really, it was more, but of that they were not aware until two days later, when one of the men was awakened by the short barking roar of a bear. He quickly roused his companions, and they made their way out of the hut with what weapons they possessed. The flesh of the seals had been suspended on a line between two poles near the other provisions, so as to protect it from any chance visit by wolves or bears. As the first man peered out from the hut opening, he saw, in the dim twilight, 
two bears standing underneath the line of meat, sniffing up at it and growling. They had, it was afterwards learned, picked up the trail where the dead seals had been dragged from the opening in the ice and had followed it to the camp. The man whispered back to his companions what he saw, and another man, armed with a rifle, crept to his side. Aiming together behind the shoulder of the larger of the bears, they fired simultaneously and brought their quarry down. Immediately, the other bear turned towards the opening and with snarling teeth advanced. A third rifle was fired point-blank at its head, but the bullet failed to penetrate the massive skull, though it made the beast change its direction. As it turned away, the men realized what its escape would mean to them. There was a rush after it, the men loading and firing as quickly as they could load, so as to secure it before it disappeared in the dim grey twilight. It fell wounded and was dispatched by means of the impromptu spears. This adventure not only made a notable break in the monotony of the life on the pack, but gave the men a subject for conversation during the long, weary period of darkness, as well as increasing their store of fat, fresh meat and warm covering. No further animals were seen or heard, although everyone was constantly on the alert, and the opening where the seals were killed was visited daily until it froze over. Then the last vestige of twilight vanished, and darkness settled down upon the ice. For eighty-three days the sun was absent, and during that time the cold was intense. The lamp was the only means of artificial heat they possessed, and even of that they had to be careful for the supply of fat was not inexhaustible, and no one knew when it could be replenished. In the coldest weather, the men huddled together under their blankets and furs, anxious and weary. They had no means of finding out in what direction they were moving, for the constant creaking of the flow led them to believe that they were drifting somewhere. Whether it was to the north or to the south, they could not tell, and yet, upon the direction in which they were moving, their salvation depended. Never, perhaps, was the return of the sun more welcomed than by the desolate castaways on the flow. But its appearance and the commencement of spring was not entirely an unmixed blessing. The rising temperature naturally caused the ice to break up, and as the flow upon which they were marooned gradually decreased in size, fresh anxiety was caused to them by the possible danger of their haven being broken up. As the days passed, they saw their food supply growing smaller and smaller until starvation stared them in the face, and hope was almost dead. April came, and with it all the privation and suffering consequent upon insufficient food and varying, helpless and almost hopeless inactivity. The last day of the month arrived and found them with the last morsel of food consumed. A man clambered to the summit of the hummock in the hopes of seeing a seal somewhere on the ice. His comrades thought that he had lost his senses when he shouted wildly and, clambering down, ran towards them, dancing and shouting. Over the top of the hummock he had caught sight of a ship, and the excitement caused by his news was soon eclipsed as the castaways saw the signals they made answered from the vessel. Boats put off for them and took them on board the ship, which was the Tigris, a sealer from Labrador. They found that in the 196 days they had spent on the flow, they had drifted over 1,500 miles from the latitude in which 
the Polaris was beset on October 12. For the time, they believed they were the only survivors of the expedition, but in this they were wrong. The remainder of the party also escaped, though without undergoing quite the same hardships as themselves. When the Polaris broke away from the ice, she did not sink, but drifted rapidly before the gale through the open channel. Captain Buddington, who had assumed command when Captain Hall died, and the twelve men who remained on board managed to keep the disabled vessel afloat, but they could do no more until she again became involved in the ice. By that time, all hopes of returning to the place where the other men were on the ice was abandoned, and as the water was fairly open, the efforts of the crew were mainly directed to warping the ship towards the coast. By good fortune, she managed to escape from the crushing packs, and with tireless effort and great care, she was at length brought within sight of land. Then she was caught in the ice along the shore and so severely nipped that her ruin was complete. She, however, did not sink and her crew were able to reach the land. Selecting a site for an encampment, they removed thither enough timber from the broken-up vessel to construct a house, to which they also removed enough stores to last them. When these necessaries were secured, they brought more timber ashore, and during the long winter night they employed themselves in constructing a couple of boats. It was a laborious task, and but slow progress was made until daylight returned. Then they were able to carry on the work faster, but it was the middle of May before they had them finished and seaworthy. As soon as the ice began to break up, they launched the boats, which were fully provisioned from the wreck, and on June 3 they sailed away to the south. Three weeks later they sighted a whaler, the Ravenscraig, who took them aboard, and within a few months of their comrades, whom they thought had all perished, landing in America from the Tigris, the boat party also landed, having saved, in addition to themselves, all the records of the surveys and observations made by the expedition. These were of great geographical value, making known much of the neighbourhood of the straits between Greenland and Grantsland. The expedition, although attaining to a high latitude, did not succeed in reaching the Pole, but their adventures made a fascinating chapter in the history of polar research. End of section 4